Just dwell on that for a minute. We're going to uh, get Judah up here to read a word, and then I'm going to get into a message. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show, uh, show them that they should always pray and not give up. Then Jesus, that's good, baby, told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. This morning we have a, a message. It's May 21st of 2006. It's Sunday morning and our message is Mission Impossible. The scripture that Judah just read said, Jesus taught His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Wouldn't you like to think that if you spent three and a half years walking with Jesus, one of a special number, one that was said would rule the twelve tribes of Israel in the age to come, that you wouldn't have to be told, don't give up? And yet they had to be told, just like us. This morning's message, as much as I'm stealing the title from a movie series, it's about all of those impossible things that you think can't be done. It's about all of those obstacles that you face. Maybe you've seen other people beat them. Maybe you believe Nick can do it or Cassidy can do it, but you can't. It's whatever mission is impossible for you. That's what we're talking about this morning. Y'all turn with me to Mark. Does anybody remember the message that I taught, Messianic Miracles? No, that was quickly forgotten, huh? Y'all, some of you remember it? Good, that makes me feel better. There were some miracles that it was taught in Israel only the Messiah can do. In fact, sometimes when Jesus did miracles, the people said, when Messiah comes, will He do anything greater than this guy's doing? It led them to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You know what's funny about these Messianic miracles, though? There's nowhere in the Word that says only the Messiah will be able to do that. These were traditions taught by men, handed down from one rabbi to the next for 1,600 years, so that when Jesus showed up, they believed that only the Messiah could do certain things. And Jesus worked within that framework. Since they believed only the Messiah could do this, that, and the other, He went forth and did those things in an effort to prove to them that He was the Messiah. With that as the backdrop, I want to read you about one of these Messianic miracles. Y'all remember it was the healing or delivering of somebody that had a deaf and mute demon. You remember why that uh, the rabbis taught you needed the Messiah to fix that problem? They had a formula for exorcism. And their formula said that you needed to know who the demon was to be able to cast it out. And since these demons were both deaf and mute or caused that in their victim... They believed that it wasn't possible to cast them out, but that the Messiah would do that. Now, I love that the Messiah is going to do that, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about whatever mission is impossible for you. Every first century Jewish believer believed that this was an impossible task for anybody except the Messiah. Y'all in Mark 9? Starting in verse 14. giving you some context here since we're picking up in the middle of a chapter. We've just come off the Mount of Transfiguration. How many disciples went up on the Mount of Transfiguration? 
three. That left nine down below. Three went up and saw the glory of God. Nine stayed home. Sound like the little piggies, huh? Mark 9, 14. When they came to the other disciples, that's Peter, James, John, Jesus, coming to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. There's nothing remarkable about that, is there? You expect the teachers of the law to argue, don't you? When Jesus and Peter and James and John came off the mountain, they saw a large crowd and the disciples and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. Verse 15, As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet Him. Sounds like He's getting a good reception, doesn't it? Verse 16, this is Jesus speaking. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. Now, it's not a problem that the teachers of the law are arguing with the disciples. That's not a problem at all. You know, when a sinner sins, you expect that. It's what they do. You didn't think it was strange that my fat little dachshund was barking at you when you came in today? That's what she does. She's a dog and dogs bark. You don't think it's strange when you see a bird fly? That's what birds do. But if you saw a frog flying, that'd be kind of strange, wouldn't it? What's the expression? When pigs fly? It'd be kind of strange, wouldn't it? There's something wrong here. It's not wrong to come off of the Mount of Transfiguration having seen the glory of God and find disciples being argued with by teachers of the law. But the disciples ought to know better. The disciples, what are they, what are they arguing about? Why does Jesus have to ask this? Watch this. Jesus asked them, What are you arguing with them about? He asked. Verse 17, A man in the crowd answered. Jesus asked the question to who? To His disciples. He's got three of them there with Him. He's shown up and the other nine, maybe the other 9,000. I don't know, but we know that there were at least nine there. Are there and they're arguing. Scribe, or the Pharisees and... Not Pharisees, I'm sorry. The teachers of the law are arguing with them and they're arguing back. I've been in a lot of situations where somebody was arguing with me. But shame on me when I'm in the situation where I'm also arguing with them. You know, a kind word will turn away wrath. But what are they arguing about? He asked this question to his disciples. Who answered? <laughs> Wasn't his disciple that answered? You know what happens when somebody you love and respect looks you square in the eye and says, what's going on here? And you're struck with silence because you know you're wrong immediately. There's a reason the disciples didn't answer him. They were scared. And they were scared because they knew that they had done something wrong. They're engaged in an argument. Paul tells us do everything without arguing or complaining. When he stands before Felix, he gives his defense. He says, when I was caught, <laughs> you know, when I was apprehended, they didn't find me arguing in the temple courts. Arguing something that's not befitting of Christians. But there's a reason that it's not befitting of Christians. Let's go on with the story though. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son. Now isn't it interesting? Did he really bring him to Jesus? Brought it to the disciples, didn't he? I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. 
but they could not. When Christians fail, it sure causes problems in the world. Truth is, we fail a lot. And it causes problems in the world. I bet if Matthew goes to his workplace tomorrow, how many people work where you work, Matt? Fifty people. I bet if he asked the fifty people there to name the first three preachers that come to their mind, somewhere in the top three, in almost every case, will be a preacher who is known for some colossal failure. The world gravitates to this. And there's a reason. There's an accuser pointing at every failure that they can find. But if that's true, we need to find out why we fail, how we fail, and what can be done about it. He brought his son to Jesus, and what he found was the disciples. He asked them for help, but they could not give it. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, this is verse 19, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I want you to get this. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, don't worry about it. They should have been able to do this, but or they, they can't do this. After all, I'm the Messiah, and this is a messianic miracle. He condemns, not condemns, he rebukes the whole group and says, unbelieving generation, how long do I have to put up with you? Well, why? Did Jesus ever tell them that they couldn't do this? In fact, when he sends them out, what does he say? I give you authority over all the power of the enemy to trample on scorpions, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to heal the sick. What had told them differently? Their traditions, their experiences. We grow up with certain thoughts about ourselves that just says, well, I can't. I can't do this and I can't do that. I'm good at writing, but I can't speak. I'm good at speaking, but I can't write. That's just not me. David's good at it. Mandy's good at it. But I'm just not. We put limitations in our life that God does not put in our life. And it causes problems. Because we're the people on earth that are supposed to showcase the glory and the work of God. And where does He get greater glory? From that which you believe you can do and are well equipped to do? Or from that which you don't believe you can do and it's His power working through you? We have wrong concepts, saints, that we need to free ourselves from. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw him into a convulsion. I want you to get out of your head that because Jesus was some kind of special case, everything was easy. Jesus was just as resisted as you are. Hear me. Jesus was just as resisted as you are. The difference between Him and us is He never gave up. Say, oh well, Jesus is God. That's why He wins here. Well, let's keep reading. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Why did Jesus have to ask that? I'm sorry, there's deafening silence here. Why did Jesus have to ask that? He just wanted the father to realize how long he had been like that? Now, that would be a preacher's trick, wouldn't it? 
The plain language of the text would seem to suggest Jesus didn't know, wouldn't it? If I ask you, how long have you been wearing those shoes, Judah? How many of you would immediately jump to the conclusion that I already secretly knew that and I just wanted to see whether Judah was aware how long he had worn those shoes? Of course not. What would the most obvious thing be? I needed to know how long he had been wearing them. If you think that Jesus cast out this demon just because he's God on earth, you're wrong. He did this as a human being, an anointed human being who refused to give up. He shows up to do it, and unlike other times, the demon doesn't shriek and just run off. doesn't beg and plead with Jesus. doesn't say, hey, Jesus, if you've got to cast me out, man, throw me into the pigs. Don't send me to the abyss. None of that kind of conversation is going on. What does the demon do? It immediately resists and does to the boy what it's always been doing to the boy. Jesus encountered resistance just like we did. He just didn't give in to it. How long has he been like this? Verse 21. I'm sorry. Yeah, 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This may be one of the saddest lines in all of the Bible. I would almost rather that you walked in here and said, Christianity is a farce, God's no good, and I don't like you much either, Eric, than to walk in here with the attitude, well, if God, if God can do it, then please do it. Lord, if it be your will. Truth is, the guy probably didn't have much trouble believing God could do it, but he was looking at a man. He's looking at Jesus. Now, initially, he had had some faith, hadn't he? Early on, we read something. I brought my boy to you. Why would he do that? Why is he searching out Jesus? Why is he bringing his son to Jesus and not to somebody else? Because he believed Jesus could do something about it. But the failure of Jesus' disciples caused a lack of faith in the man regarding Jesus. When you want to know why more people aren't in church, when you want to know why the knowledge of God hasn't covered the earth like waters covers the seas, it's because of us. When we begin to believe, when we begin to act as if God's Word is really true, People will be drawn to it. I was having an impromptu lunch with somebody yesterday. They grew up in the Church of Christ, which could be a good or a bad thing. I have no idea. I guess it depends upon the church, just like it would if you said you grew up in a charismatic church. And the guy is now 40s, 50s. He said he's reading the New Testament for the first time as an adult. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting to hear what's his response. You know, truthfully, I was there because I was hoping they might ask something about this. The guy says, I'm reading the New Testament for the first time and I am just struck with something. I'm thinking, here it comes. Here it comes. Hoping that he wants his life to change. Hoping that he's looking for an opportunity to get saved. 
hoping for all kinds of things. You know what he was struck with? He said the New Testament is so supernatural. He could not believe. He was shocked in reading the book of Acts how commonplace miracles seemed to be. That ordinary men were doing extraordinary things. That same testimony that the Word records so long ago about ordinary men doing extraordinary things and that working in the hearts of unbelievers is the same thing that changes people today. When they see you, an ordinary person, doing extraordinary things, they're struck with awe. And for the first time, they begin to wonder, does God really work in His people like this? Maybe religion's not just for women and children. Maybe this is not some fable that men have merely agreed upon. Maybe there is something to it. But it only happens when ordinary people do extraordinary things. These disciples have missed an enormous opportunity. It was something that the average Jew didn't believe could be done. Unfortunately, on this day, the disciples acted like average Jews. But they were not. They were called to be so much more than that. Jesus is upset. He calls them an unbelieving generation. He didn't exclude His disciples from that. We're so much more than just ordinary. Nobody has any problem believing God can do these things. The problem is, do you believe that you can do these things? Verse 23, If you can, Jesus said, or said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Jesus says, if you can, you can hear the insult on his voice. You ever been really good at something? I mean, really proficient, maybe the best out of your peer group at what you do. And then somebody go, well, you know, if you can get that done. You may not say it out loud, but you're thinking, hey, buddy, you know who you're talking to. I'm, I'm good at this, <laughs> you know. Maybe you've been a carpenter all your life, and somebody asks you to do something as simple as build a birdhouse and says, you know, Judy, if you could build that birdhouse, and you're thinking, this guy doesn't know who he's talking to. Man, I can build that birdhouse. I can build a house for you and all of your friends and your family. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Now, there's a problem with that. This is in direct competition with this ingrained knowledge, this predetermined framework that the Jews already had. The Jews believed that only the Messiah could do a miracle like this. Only the Messiah could heal a leper in Israel. Only the Messiah could open the eyes of a man born blind. Only the Messiah could heal somebody that had a demon that caused them to be mute in death. Only the Messiah could raise somebody from the dead after four days. These were rules that they had made up. They're not found in Scripture. They're surmised from human behavior. They had never seen these things done. While they had seen other miracles, so they began to believe nobody but the Messiah could do it. It would take a very special case for somebody to do these things. Think about this for a minute, saints. What in your life is like that? Only Benny Hinn could do this. Only Billy Graham could do this. Only John Hagee. I don't know. who. Pat Robertson. Jesus says everything is possible for him who believes. 
One of the reasons that we have such a problem with pastor worship is because it, in, it excuses us of the obligation to do what the Word says. We hold everybody up that has actually believed anything that the Lord has said. We hold them up on some different plane than we are. That way we don't have to do what they do. A friend told me recently that Kenneth Hagin had died. Kenneth Hagin was an ordinary man who did extraordinary things. I'm excited about the legacy that the man left on the earth. I'm even more excited that I think the man had some huge flaws in his life and yet did extraordinary things. I don't put him or anybody else in a special class all by themselves. In fact, it encourages me, an ordinary person full of flaws, that I can do extraordinary things. Jesus did not announce Himself as the only one that could do this. Instead, He rebuked the entire generation of people for not believing that they could do it. You understand the difference? Think He's just rebuking His disciples? Then why didn't He do that? He's rebuking all of Israel who's supposed to be in covenant with God, who are supposed to be sons of the Most High, for not believing that they could do it. Now, if 23 is the saddest verse in the Bible, 24 is the most honest and refreshing. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. (laughs) What a glowing paradox, huh? I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Well, do you believe or not, sir? That's another way of saying... I want to believe. Help me to believe you. That's really where we're at. None of you has decided that you don't want to believe the Word that's put in front of you. In fact, all of you have taken pledges to believe it. You you sing about it. You pray about it. You read it and cry over it, just like I do. Perhaps where our prayers need to be oriented is, help me in my unbelief, Lord. Is it hard for you to admit that some area of your life dwells in unbelief? I found out something. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this. Maybe a little later in the message. But I found out that the Lord takes you to a place of unbelief over and over and over so that when He causes it to come about, there's a greater trust there than there was before. As much as I want all of you to believe, I need to go ahead and acknowledge right up front many, many, many times in your life, just like mine, you won't and it's for your benefit. Because when God does do it and you're amazed, it causes your trust in Him to grow so that the next time you will believe. We serve the kind of God that can take your failures and make them successes. In fact, He took these disciples who have now tainted this man's faith, who have been arguing with the teachers of the law as an opportunity to prove to the world He was the Messiah. He can take your biggest failures and make them a glowing success in His kingdom. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe! Help me in my unbelief! When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, He rebuked the evil spirit. 
You deaf, mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him, never to enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. He stood up. I can relate. When I got born again, it was just like that young man standing up. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, His disciples asked Him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? If you can drive it out, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Now this has been quoted a lot. Usually quoted as prayer and fasting and your footnote will tell you that this could be translated that way. Prayer and fasting. This is usually quoted in the sense that in some way fasting gives you spiritual power. If fasting gives you spiritual power, then why was Jesus in the 40th day of a fast when the devil came to tempt Him? Why not day one? Why not day two? Better yet, why not the day before He began fasting? If fasting gives you spiritual power. Fasting doesn't do a thing for God. What's the problem with God in this scenario? Was God unwilling to help this child? No. Was the problem with the child? He just didn't have enough faith. No. What was the problem with? The unbelieving disciples. So what needed to change? The unbelieving disciples. This is why Jesus rebukes them for not having faith, all of Israel for not having faith, an unbelieving generation. says, if you believe, all things are possible. And then they said, why couldn't we do it? He basically is telling them, you need to be in prayer more. You need to be close with your Father. You need to be in communication with Him so that you know who you are and what you can do in His kingdom. By the way, what had they been doing? They weren't praying. What were they doing? Arguing. Every day, Christians have the choice. If I speak with Matthew harshly and he speaks back to me harshly, we call that arguing. If I do the same thing to God, we call it grumbling. If I speak to God in a way that bemoans my circumstances, that's grumbling. Every day, Christians are faced with the choice. Prayer and consciousness of God or arguing and grumbling. The result of one is a condemnation from the Messiah. <laughs> this is wrong behavior. A lack of results. Don't get what you're after. The result of the other is that you pray, you refuse to give up, and God gives you harvest in its due season. Have you ever watched people's lives and going, my God, this is the third generation of alcoholics. Fourth generation of alcoholics. And their kids are coming up the same way. How long do you need to keep doing these things before you begin to realize they don't work? Have you ever looked at somebody close to you and wondered how long will they dwell in this death before they begin to cry out for life? You can nod at me, saints. You can talk to me. You guys don't know anybody that is not glorified now, huh? See, i got people that I love, and I wonder how long before they'll wake up. And as I began to think about that, I was on this car ride. I started thinking about how long before I wake up. We claim that we 
or in the light, having received the power, tasted of the kingdom of God. And we don't believe He can do the things that He's told us He would do. So, oh, well, yeah, I believe it. Really? You believe He'll provide for you? How many of you worried about your finances this week? You believe that He will perform that which He's promised you? Why do you bemoan your life and wonder when you'll get in your calling as if you weren't in it right now? Why do we walk around sad and depressed like we have no hope? See, we say that we believe, but it's time to actually do it. Guys, there is nothing that is impossible for him who believes. I love that word, nothing. He didn't say there are some things that are possible for him who believes. There's most things that are possible. By putting it in this way, he leaves out. He doesn't leave out anything. There's nothing that is impossible for him who believes. What mountain can you face? Here's really what you need to train yourself to do. You know the little bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? We need to think about the problem in relation to Jesus. You can't get a job, right? Could Jesus get a job? Well, yeah, Jesus could get a job. He was talented. Well, if Jesus could do it, and I believe, then I can do it. Whether it's healing, whether it's a job, whether it's provision, whether it's joy, whatever it is, if Jesus could do it, you can do it. That's why He chose you. I've taught you before about that principle. Rabbis interviewed their students. They questioned them. They wanted to discern from their answers, does this student have the ability to be just like me? Because if he doesn't, I want him to go apply somewhere else. Sure don't want him out there representing me. Jesus not only did not interview his students, he didn't make them apply. Didn't make them wait on a long waiting list. He went out and found them. You didn't choose me, I chose you, he said. Well, each one of you are here today because he chose you. That means he thinks you can do this. Prayer and arguing. In Acts 24, yeah, y'all can turn your pages. In Acts 24, starting in verse 10, tell me when you're there. 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 When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. And I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Saints, there are some keys to having the power of God present. One is... We need to stop being in contention with everyone around us. What, what do you really think the teachers of the law and the disciples were arguing about? They were engaged in an intense argument. Truth is, it doesn't matter. 
You almost cannot hear from God when you are mad at the people around you. That's why it's such a trick of the devil. In fact, the first thing that God sees about Cain is that he's got a downcast face. The first thing that Paul says to the Galatian church is, what happened to your joy? When you are ticked off at anyone, but at the world at large especially, how on earth are you going to minister God's love, mercy, and justice? You know why I think Jesus asked how long that kid had been that way? Number one, he didn't know. Number two, it caused compassion in him. He saw something that was horrible. He said, how long has he been like this? That evoked in him a human desire to see this kid healed. If he'd been like that one day, I'm sure he still would have gotten healed. But you know, like when Jesus wept over Lazarus. He knew he was going to heal him, but he wept because he saw the effects of this on all of the people. I think Jesus asked how long he had been this way just to get a sense of the situation. That strike you is strange. He's the Messiah. But he laid aside his God-like status, taking on the nature of a servant. He's just like you. His ministry pointed to the fact that you can do these things. Paul defends himself before this governor. They didn't find me arguing. In other words, they didn't find me acting like some regular old carnal guy. They found me worshiping with the same hope as they're all supposed to have. That needs to be our testimony. You need to not be found arguing. In Philippians 2, he tells the Philippians, Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Before I read the rest of that, why go through the whole... Why write all of those extra words about God working in you to will and act according to His good purpose? Why do that? Why not just say, don't argue? Because one gives you perspective for the other. Whatever trial, whatever difficulty is in front of you, is God working in you to get you to will and act according to His purposes? Do you think it's a mistake that Peter, James, John, the leaders with Jesus were away while these other nine disciples faced this problem? I don't at all. You know... You can infer from the Scripture something about Peter's personality, can't you? Why? Because he's written about a lot. You can infer something in the Scripture from John's personality, can't you? Well, sure, he wrote a Gospel. You can infer something in the Scripture about James. He's talked about a lot. But if I ask you about Thaddeus, what can you tell me? Bartholomew. If I ask you about these other nine, what can you tell me? Not a lot, right? These three were leaders. Jesus was the leader and these people faced this trial without Him present and I think it was on purpose. The trials that you face in your moments of weakness, rather than just always viewing it as demonic opposition, so what if it is? God is moving, working in you to will and act according to His purposes. It's those moments where we learn to dig down deep Get in touch with His Spirit. Get in touch with Him and succeed. That's what He's looking for. It's in that light 
that the next verse comes. Verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. How can you do it without complaining or arguing? Because you know that it is God working in you to will and act according to His purposes. Quit saying, oh my God, why am I saddled with this horrible job? Oh my God, why do I have this struggle with my children? Oh my God, why do I have a spouse that is whatever? Probably whatever my wife says about me. It's God working in us to will and act according to His purpose. So when you are arguing and complaining about it, you're resisting God. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the Word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. I want you to get this. Just by not complaining you can become as evident to everyone around you that you're holding out the Word of Life as a star shining in the blackness of the heavens. Why? Because they're all complaining and arguing. Drive down 59, especially right now while some barrels are up there. Tell me that you see happy people around you. You'd be lying. You don't. You shine like the brightness of the heavens simply by refusing to act according to a carnal instinct to complain. I heard it said of somebody that they had a special talent for being displeased. You don't want that. That's not a talent you want. You want a special talent for walking in joy and contentment. When faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down. Psalm 85.11 says that. You'll get whatever you need from heaven by showing a little faithfulness on earth. Help me in my unbelief. My favorite words. Help me in my unbelief. It both acknowledges the man's weakness and asks for God's help. God doesn't require perfection of you. He asks you to aim for it knowing that you can't get there. You know what He wants? He wants an attitude that says, I want to believe you, Jesus. I want with all of my heart to do what you told me to do. Help me. Because I'm, I'm struggling. When I've talked on Wednesday nights about depression, at times people have gotten confused. Is Eric saying that it doesn't exist? Is Eric saying that somehow I'm bad if I take vitamin supplements or medication? No. I'm saying acknowledge your struggle. Ask God for help. And do something different. When? <laughs> when? That's all I want from you. I want you to believe that you can win. These disciples didn't fail because they couldn't do it. They failed because they didn't believe they could do it. You know how many people are kept from Christ because they don't believe they could live that lifestyle? Just as many as are in Christ and are kept from victory because they don't believe they can live that lifestyle. We gravitate towards preachers on the radio and on TV and in foreign lands and whoever seems different and aloof and separated above us as people who can do something. Have you ever noticed if you need to get healed... You're willing to drive to fly to Greece. <laughs> You're willing to go to California to go to some great speaker's meetings to get healed. Is God any different in Greece than He is here? Is God any different on the mission field where we hear all the miracles take place than He is here? So what's different? The people are. 
God doesn't need to be in a certain location to do anything. He needs the people to be in a certain location in His presence. Do you remember a guy travels a long distance? says, Jesus, I need you to heal my, my son, the royal official son, soldier's son, rather. Jesus starts to go back with him and said, no, 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 no. I'm a soldier. I've got men under my authority. I tell this one, go and he goes. This one, stay and he stays. You just speak the word, it'll be done. Jesus didn't have to go there to heal that child. He needed that man to believe that it could be done. Thank this time that we rise up. I don't mean rise up and believe that God can do it. I mean rise up and believe that you can do it. You're better than our behavior sometimes. I'm better than my behavior sometimes. I'm capable of more than I did this week. I promise that. I believe that. It's working in me and it's propelling me. It gives me a conviction to do more. Some of you will hear that and immediately you start to heap weight upon your own shoulders. You'll hear that and you'll think, oh, I'm just not doing enough. I'm just not a good... It's not what I said. I said you are capable of more than you did. I didn't say you didn't do enough. I said you're capable of more. Help me in my unbelief. Romans 4.18 contains what I think is the best description of faith in the Bible. Matthew, would you click that over there and see uh, how many, what the time is? So I just have some idea. Romans 4.18 Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham did not waver through unbelief, but was strengthened. Now, I've read that for years. I've quoted that. Those of you that know me, since the first month I was born again, this is one that I've clung to. When everybody else goes to Hebrews Hall of Fame and says, faith is the substance of things unseen, I have always gone to this one. You know why? Because it makes more sense to me. The other one's wonderful, but I understand this one. And as much as I've understood it and loved it now for 13 years, I realized something this morning. This says that Abraham did not waver through unbelief, but was strengthened. What about when he said, she's my sister? (laughs) What about when he lied about his wife? You wouldn't call that wavering? How about when he tells God, no, 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 no. I'm getting old. I got no kids. I know you said I'm going to have kids. Let's let Eleazar inherit my estate. That's not wavering? How about when he goes, you know, Hagar's not all that ugly. I know they call her a hag, but wife kind of thinks that we could have children with her and call them our own. That's not wavering? So why does the Scripture say that he didn't waver through unbelief but was strengthened in his faith? Are you telling me that Abraham did not have moments of unbelief? They're well documented in the Scripture. I'm telling you, he didn't persist in them. He was not wavered off of his purpose. 
The reason you can look at the man's life and say he didn't waver but was strengthened in his faith or trust is because he had them, he moved on from them with a stronger faith than he had before. I'm not telling you that you don't get sick, that you don't get depressed. I'm not telling you that you don't look at a mountain and say it can't be moved at times. What I'm telling you is you should refuse to persist in that belief. You should throw it right out and say, all things are possible for him who believes. I can win. I can do. I will succeed. That needs to be the Christian attitude, not because I'm a motivational speaker. I'd have a bigger church if I was. But because that's what the Scripture teaches us. I'm not here with pom-poms trying to get you to feel good about yourself. I just want you to believe what the Word says about you. I want to believe what the Word says about me. This is one of those messages that I won't tell anybody that I do, except for right now, but I'll put it on a CD, play it in my car to remind me. You know, there is no conviction in the world like hearing your own messages and knowing you don't live up to them. You ever looked at your children, told them, you'll do this, this, and this, and you realize you didn't ever do that once when you were a kid and probably couldn't put it into practice as an adult? I'm telling us what to shoot for, developing the right attitude. At first glance, it looks like Abraham did not experience unbelief, but we know that's not the case. Eleazar inheriting his estate, Hagar with Ishmael. She's my sister with Sarah. That is not what the Scripture teaches. The key word is waver. He did not reside in his unbelief to the point that it dissuaded him from God's purpose in his life. Instead, his faith or trust grew stronger and stronger and overcame his temporary unbelief. One moment in time does not define who you are. doesn't work in a positive or negative sense. Just because Judah has a moment of unbelief does not mean that he's an unbeliever. That moment doesn't characterize his life. Now, saints, let me turn that coin over just for a minute. One moment of faith in your life does not characterize who you are either. So you believed way back in 1943 and you did great things for God. That does not characterize your life. That's a hard word, isn't it? You mean you can't coast? No. You need to maintain the attitude. Everything is possible for him who believes. Your faith needs to be strengthened and grow. More so and more so. Romans 11 teaches us something. Let me teach what you think I'm going to teach. No Israel grafting today. I think you all are all pretty well. You're going to need a skin graft if I keep rubbing you raw with all the Israel teaching. But there's a principle about belief and unbelief that is mentioned here. Romans 11:17. If some branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over the branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith or trust. How do you get broken off from God? Unbelief. That's hard, isn't it? This is not temporary unbelief. 
This is a lifetime characterized by unbelief. You want to know that for sure? Keep reading. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. I'm not condemning you and saying you have no hope if you had unbelief in your life an hour before you walked into the service. What I'm telling you is as a child of God, you cannot stay in that condition. You cannot persist in unbelief. Your trust in God must grow to the point where you begin to believe. Where you begin to believe that it can be done. That happens just like it happened for that father. I do believe, Lord. Make the confession. Even if it's not 100% true. Then say, help me in my unbelief. What I'm asking us to do is to begin to act and say that the promises of God are true in our lives. And then ask God to help you walk in a way in which they are actually true. I've been teaching this kind of thing for a long time in various ways. Another way you've heard this is wear the smile on your face until it becomes a reality in your heart. That's not false. That's not a facade. That's faith. That's saying, Lord, this is the right thing to do. And I'm saying, help me to do it. (laughs) There's mercy for temporary unbelief. I want you to know that. This is a powerful statement. There is mercy for unbelief. I'm not throwing stones. I'm telling you, I have moments of unbelief more than I would care to admit even to myself. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. You know, Timothy and Paul were close. He calls Timothy a son to him. He wrote a letter to him that I'm sure Paul was aware would be widely read, but he wrote it to his son. Listen to what he says. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy... Y'all can say amen to that, huh? I was shown mercy. Why? Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. (laughs) Unbelief is not a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But God knows it exists. He's looking for you to cry out, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. This mission's not impossible. You're with me. Find out that this whole process is to build your trust is to build your faith. But before we get there, I have to warn you about something. That's not the only way unbelief is spoken of in the Scripture. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. Just do it quickly. Hebrews 3.16 Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear, they will never enter my rest? if it was not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief will never inherit the promises of God. We cannot sit there. Millions of people died, their bodies in a desert, having started on a journey in faith, or supposed faith, 
at least being willing enough to follow, and didn't finish because they persisted in unbelief. If all they would do is believe, everything would be possible for them, even grafting in again, like so many who did get grafted in again and are to this day. This whole thing is to build your trust. Colossians 2, verse 6 tells us something. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Not enough to believe on Him one moment in time and get baptized. I'm getting to where I even bothers me to say, well, I was saved on such and such day. It would be so much more accurate to say I began in the path of salvation. You know? I was born that day, but I have a whole life yet to live. But the Scripture does speak about saved in the past tense, and it's certainly not wrong. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in your faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. We have to not only start in Him, but continue in Him, digging deeper and deeper roots in Him, letting what is in Him grow up in us so that our faith is strengthened. This is not the end of these disciples' lives. We don't remember these nine disciples as the unbelieving disciples because they went on and did great things, continuing in Him, strengthened, rooted, built up. Whatever you failed God in last week does not define your life because you're continuing in Him, rooted, built up, being strengthened in your faith. This is God's will for our lives. We're not defined by our failures. I heard a very popular preacher in Baton Rouge, Louisiana say, nobody is fallen who continues in Christ. That man's described more than any other I've ever heard of as fallen. They even number them the first time he fell, as if the people saying it don't have fallings in their life. Nobody's fallen who continues to trust in Jesus. If you were, where would you be? We're supposed to continue being strengthened in our faith. These moments are God moving in us to act His will is that we act according to His purpose. He's moving in us for that reason. Every trial that comes your way, we don't have to argue or complain. It is God trying to strengthen our trust in Him. Acts 3.16 By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. Peter and John healing somebody. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through Him that has given this complete healing to Him as you can all see. I want you to get this. There are two kinds of faith mentioned in this verse. Faith in Jesus' name. A name in Hebrew is somebody's function. It's their descriptive title. Who they are based on what they do. Faith in who Jesus is. That's faith in His name. But that's not the only kind of faith that was mentioned. They said, and faith that comes through Him. When you have faith in who Jesus is and you dwell in that, believing Jesus can do this, Jesus can do that, Jesus can do anything, you would all agree with that, then His faith begins to work through you. I can do this. I can do that. I can do anything. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. Faith that comes through Him. You all believe Jesus can do anything. What we need to do is graduate to the point where we believe through Him You can do anything. 
That's faith that comes through Him. Trust that comes through Him. Trusting in who He is and what He said means what He said about you is true. Y'all get that? Y'all tired? I'm beating you into the earth? <laughs> For those that didn't hear that, my son said he's tired and I'm beating him into the earth. We're about to close, Judah. Hang on with me for one more moment. In Romans 1, we see another relationship with faith. Through Him and for His name's sake, this is Romans 1.5, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. I want you to get this, saints. When there is real trust present, it manifests in obedience. But that's not the end of the story. If Nick calls me and says, Eric, I'm really looking for the perfect recipe. I want to do something sweet for Lindy. Now, truthfully, Nick would never call me for that. I would call Nick for that. And I say, Nick, what you need to do is you need to take thus and so food and follow these ten steps with it. He has to trust me to be obedient to those words. Believing that the outcome is going to be just like I said it would be. Faith demonstrates itself in obedience. But the reciprocal part of this relationship is, after having done that, after having been obedient, and seeing that it turns out a certain way, his faith also grows. If it works well, he calls me the next time. He says, man, that recipe worked fantastic. Lindy hadn't stopped talking about it. Do you have any more? Our relationship with God, our trust in Him, needs to be demonstrated in our obedience. And when we are actually obedient and you see the results, you see the mute demon come out, you see the blind eyes open, it's easier to trust Him the next time. This happens by continuing in Him, by obeying His Word. That's why Christians who are successful tend to get more and more successful. And Christians who are not, don't. You see somebody who is bitter, who is upset, who is whiny, who is depressed all of the time? Twenty years later, they'll just be worse. That doesn't get better without a strategic intervention in their life from God and from them. It doesn't. I heard it said by one preacher, and I think he was probably right. It's not true this morning, and I'm not saying this because somebody is or is not here, and I need to be very clear about that. He said, the problem with all the good messages that I preach is that the people that need to hear them most are the ones that are not there. In other words, the sheep that needed the most help never got it because they needed the most help. They couldn't get out of bed. They couldn't do those things. They were not inspired to faith and obedience. And because they were not, they never would be. While those who were strong already just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Do you understand how that works? Do you really? The one that's too tired to exercise never does, and he gets more and more and more and more and more tired. The one that's strong enough to begin exercising just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I don't have to read between the lines there anymore. I'm not talking about somebody who's not here today. I'm talking about you because you're here. I'm talking about me because I was called to stand up here and say these things, which means I have some obligation to live them. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 is one of the most quoted verses 
and Christianity. And I wonder if you knew where to find it. We live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. Let me give you that in the King Eric. It means we trust even when we don't see. We trust even when you don't see it. That obedience will yield a harvest and will breed more trust, which is what God wants. Read you out of Philippians. We're going to close here any second. Philippians 1, 27. Whatever happens, saints, I want you to think about this. After hearing this message, think about Paul writing this letter to you. So this morning it's addressed to Bobby. It's addressed to Judah and Brad and Les and whoever else. It's addressed to you this morning. Judah, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending, which means fighting, as one man for the faith or trust of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. You trusting God and acting like you trust Him does two things. It causes you to shine like a star in the heavens holding out the word of life so that some will run to you like a lighthouse. And to those that refuse to, they look at you and all they see is they're going to be destroyed because they won't do it. God's called you, like Jesus, to be a dividing line in the sand. If less can do it, then I better. I better try. God's taken ordinary men and doing extraordinary things. If He can do it, and I won't, even though I've seen that example, I'm going to be held accountable because I've seen that example. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Boy, that sounds good. If I said, Mandy, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. You're expecting something really good to come after that, aren't you? To be queen in Houston. To be at my left or right hand, right? It's been granted to you, Bobby Stevens, on behalf of Jesus Christ. You're expecting the next sentence to be a good one, right? Well, what does it say? Not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. It's treated like a gift. It's been granted to you that you get not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer. How could they do that? Because this apostle, maybe more so than any of the others, understood that suffering for him produced trust in him. Every time he suffered, he got delivered. Every time he was in need, God met his need. And that trust in him created greater obedience. Have you ever wondered how it is that Paul looks at Elimus and blinds him? How Peter looks at this woman and says, Hey, the same guys that carried out your husband are coming to get your dead body. While she's standing there alive. That is some kind of trust, isn't it? How you take somebody up into a room to pray for them, to be raised from the dead. What thoughts would be going through your mind? What happens if they don't get up? I carried this dead body up there. I'd be carrying this dead body down. It came from a great trust, a great faith. And that trust was built over time by what they endured. Faith and trust are supposed to grow more and more. The only place in all of the Scripture that I found where it says somebody's faith was growing more and more was in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. 
We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Do everything without arguing or complaining, whether it's persecutions, trials, or suffering. It's a chance for your trust in Him to grow more and more. Plus, I like to be around you more if you're happy. You'll like to be around me more if I'm happy. It's not without its temporal benefits. I'm not talking about something that's just intangible. It's a whole lot more fun to be around people who are upbeat in any situation than those that are down in any situation. You know them though, don't you? I don't want to make that list. We're going to close with these thoughts. Jude and Peter both speak about something. I'm going to read them to you real quick. Jude 10. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do not understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. There is an instinct or inclination within man that is animalistic. Argue, complain, fuss, strife, disbelief. All of those works of the sinful nature. That's how the Bible describes it. When we don't understand how a situation will work out, when we don't understand why we are where we're at, when we don't understand something, it is tempting for those animal instincts to take over. Peter said it like this in 2 Peter 2.12, But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back harm for the harm they have done. There is within us a nature that is unpleasing to God and it never shows its head more than when you do not understand why you're in the situation. When is obedience the very hardest? When you don't understand why it's being asked of you. These are the times that it is tempting for us as Christians to rely on our own arm, to rely on our own instincts, to do what comes most natural to us. But 2 Peter 1 says the following. You know, I've read these to you, this Scripture, an awful lot. To those who through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith, a trust as precious as ours. He writes the letter to people whose trust in God is just as precious as His. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Those evil desires in us to disbelieve God, to argue, to complain, to do what we want to do, can be overcome by the other nature He put in you, His divine nature. We just need to believe that it can be done in any and every situation. In Matthew 17, Jesus said, nothing will be impossible for you. In Luke 1, an angel told Mary, for nothing is impossible with God. In Luke 18, Jesus 
speaks and says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. There's only one thing in all of the Bible, only one which is said to be completely impossible. It's in the book of Hebrews. Anybody know what it is? God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to hold to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. There's only one thing that's impossible in the Scripture and that's for God to lie to you. All things are possible for him who believes. The only thing that is mission impossible is for God to have lied to you. That means if he says you're righteous, you're righteous. He says you can look at a mountain and throw it into the sea, you can do that. It means that whatever he puts before you is possible for you to do. It's him moving in you to will and act according to his purpose. The only thing that is impossible is for him to have lied to you. He gave you his word as an anchor for your soul. Let's lean on that anchor and believe that he is who he says he is, that he does what he says he does, and even more so, the hard part, that you can do what he says you can do. Don't allow the purpose of your life to waver in unbelief. Let your faith grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Stand up. Let's pray.